Good morning, church. I'm Pastor Jay, and I do invite you to turn in your Bible or device to John, Gospel, chapter 3, verse 16. If you are visiting with us, we are in a series in the Gospel of John, and we're going to slow things down this weekend and do something we're not doing in the entire rest of our series, and that is we're going to focus on one verse today. And we're going to look at what some have argued historically is the most famous verse in American culture. Today, some debate whether it's this one or do not judge, lest you be judged. I think it's up for toss, but John 3.16 is our text, and it is a verse that announces that there is a God in heaven who is overflowing with love for moral failures like us and sent his son on a rescue mission. Martin Luther, the German monk who lived 500 years ago, called this verse a miniature gospel. And he said the reason is it's the story of a God who sent his only begotten son to rescue perishing lost sinners. What we're going to do is we're going to drill down on four phrases in this verse and just simply look at them one at a time so that wherever you're at spiritually, that all of us at least leave today and we've heard the gospel. I don't know if you know Christ as Savior. I don't know if you've been born again. My job isn't to convert. Your job isn't to convert, but our job is to converse and make sure that people understand the gospel if we know Christ. And so my goal today, my prayer, is that all of us would leave today and have heard the gospel and had a chance to respond. So the first phrase we're going to drill down on, spend some time on, for God so loved the world. Now, what a lot of people in secular Western nations don't understand is that historically, the concept of a personal, loving God is missing from most of the world's religions. A lot of people don't even really realize that. They kind of think that this is common. It's not. When you look historically at the religions of the world, even today or in past, this is largely a foreign concept, that God is both personal and that he's loving. The gods of the Romans and the Greeks, for example, were petty, jealous, competitive, vindictive, capricious, and often violent. The gods of Hinduism, even today, are terrifying. I know because we've talked to Hindus in India. We talked to them. They're merciless. The, they're gods. They're impulsive and they're cruel in many senses. Same is true of the gods of many of the ancient cultures, the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Egyptians. And this is where the true God of the Bible is so radically different than the other gods, the counterfeit gods, the pagan gods. From Genesis to Revelation, we are told there is a personal God and that he is loving. In fact, 1 John 4, 8 announces that God is love. And here's what it means. That of all the things you can say about God, make sure you say he's loving, that he's love, and it's his nature to love. I love the Old Testament, and the Old Testament in particular is filled with declarations of God's love. I could stand here and read several pages of verses. Let me read you a couple of my favorite. Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. 
Or from Jeremiah 31, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. Or from Daniel 9, listen to the wording. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. So the Bible's declaration, the Bible's announcement, the God of the Bible wants you to know that he is overflowing with love for lost, perishing sinners, moral failures like you and I, and that this is very unique among the religions of the world. Now, at this point, because we're Americans and we breathe the air of our culture, it's important to address one of the most common questions that comes up when you're talking about the love of God. And here's the question. Is God's love unconditional? It's a phrase that preachers throw out on a regular basis. And the answer, biblically, is that it depends on what you mean by the phrase. Okay? Is God's love unconditional? The concept of unconditional love was especially popularized in the 1960s by the world-famous psychologist, psychotherapist Carl Rogers, who was also a committed atheist, brilliant, but skeptical and didn't believe in God. In the 1960s, he came up with the phrase, his technical phrase was unconditional positive regard, but the whole point of Rogerian psychology was this, it was to separate love from moral judgments. Recognize that? <laughs> that is, you know, ideas have consequences and we see the consequences of that trajectory in our culture today to separate love from moral judgments. In other words, Carl Rogers wanted to argue that to make any moral judgment of any kind means we aren't loving somebody, that we're not accepting somebody, we're not affirming somebody. And the problem is when you talk about the unconditional love of God, it's not the way the Bible speaks of the love of God. In fact, the Bible never uses the phrase, the unconditional love of God. Now, some of you may wonder, well, where did the phrase come from? Here, one of my go-to people is one of my favorite church historians, Thomas Oden. Thomas Oden is a well-known evangelical scholar who is a specialist in what we call the patristics, the early church. But he's a specialist in church history. In fact, he's the editor of the massive 30 volume. It's called the Ancient Christian Commentary. And what it is, is from Genesis to Revelation, looks at each book of the Bible, but only looks at it through scholars and, 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 and from commentators from about oh, the first uh, eight or nine centuries. That's it. That's why it's called the Ancient Christian Commentary. It wants to know what did the ancient fathers have to say about this passage or that passage. So it's a wonderful resource. Thomas Oden says the phrase God's unconditional love, I was reading his autobiography a few years ago, and he happened to touch on this, and he said that that phrase, he finally came to realize. It was interesting. He started as a theological liberal and became a Bible-believing conservative and was born again. He has a PhD from Yale, and he started way on the left, and he moved way over to the right. And he says that in all of his research, what he discovered was the phrase unconditional, God's unconditional love was used for the first time that he can ever discover in his research in the 1960s, coming out of, especially from the popularization of Carl Rogers and that whole movement. And he says nowhere in 2,000 years of church history can he find that phrase before the 1960s. 
And he argues, Odin does, that the, the expression God's unconditional love comes out of the moral confusion of the 1960s. Now, here it's important to remember something. You've got to put your thinking cap on a minute. The words we use and the ideas we believe directly impact how we think and live. I think all of us would probably say, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. And here, one of the reasons that contemporary Christians have problems thinking through contemporary moral issues is because we often adopt, I mean, I've been guilty of this, we often adopt uncritically and sometimes unknowingly unbiblical concepts and categories from the air we breathe in our own culture. And we just assume, well, that's the way to see reality. And often, it's not. D.A. Carson, one of the commentaries we've been recommending in this series, New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson has a, a small book that's a little bit provocative. It's very helpful. The title of the book is The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And in that book, he talks about how ideas about God's love have been distorted in Western American culture. He writes this, The love of God in our culture, the concept of the love of God in our culture, has been purged of anything that our culture finds uncomfortable. The love of God has been sanitized, democratized, and above all, sentimentalized. And this causes many to think of God's love more this way, unconditional approval or unconditional acceptance. You probably have heard some of those concepts even in the current moral debate in our own culture about unconditional acceptance, unconditional approval. The problem is, it's not accurate to say that God accepts all sinners unconditionally regardless of their beliefs or their behavior. That's just, let me say it again. It's not accurate to say that God just accepts all sinners unconditionally regardless of beliefs or behavior. There's a number of passages we could look at that would underscore this. I want to take you to one of those I think is the clearest. And it's Psalm 145. So if you have a Bible there, I hope you do, in front of you or on a device, go back to Psalm 145. I want to show you one of those Old Testament passages that is so clear about God's love. I love Psalm 145, but it also shows us the complexity of the conversation when you talk about the love of God. And if you know Christ and you are a Christian and you are speaking to a culture, you want to make sure you're doing it in a way that they're going to hear it biblically and not walk away with a distorted understanding of what you're talking about. So Psalm 145 is a remarkable description of God's love. For example, I'm going to start in verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9. Notice the wording. Young people, especially, I hope, hope you're tracking with this. Because this is so countercultural to just about everything else you're going to hear, whether it's school or your friends or your neighborhood. The Lord is gracious. Psalm 145, verse 8. Let's pay attention to what God, you know, what's the text say? The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and what? Rich in love. Verse 9. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Theologians call this God's common grace. It's God's common love, his love for all mankind, and it's a very biblical doctrine. Now, 
Drop down to verses 18 and 19. Notice here something very important. There are conditions put on those whom God will accept and approve of. And those are laid out in verses 18 and 19. The Lord is near. Now I'm going to read these. As I read these, look for it. There's at least two conditions given about those whom God will accept and approve of. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Verse 19, he fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. So we're back in verses 8 and 9. Theologians call that God's common grace, his common love for all mankind. Verses 18 and 19 are what theologians call God's special saving grace. And what it means is this, that while God does love all sinners, he doesn't love all sinners alike. That's what this psalm is teaching us here. And this is emphasized in what comes next in verse 20. Notice what we see in verse 20. The Lord watches over all who love him, but... And then what's the last phrase here say? All, what's the text say? All the wicked he will destroy. Now this throws a lot of Bible-believing Americans and even non-Bible-believing Americans into a bit of a tizzy. Why? Because it's precisely at this point that some will say, now wait just a minute before I have a, a brain meltdown here. I thought verses 8 and 9 say God is rich in love. It does. The text is very clear. God is rich in love. But then in verse 20, it says, but he will destroy the wicked. It does. The text is very clear. So you're saying, Pastor Jay, and I'm saying, I'm just saying what the text is saying. This means that some of the people God loves will be destroyed by his wrath. And the answer biblically is, yes, that is true. See, we only think in terms of categories that God's wrath would only be towards those he didn't love. We don't have a category. Now, again, that's why you have to read broadly, look at commentaries, look at what the church has said, look at the scriptures, ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom, consult others. God gave the gift of teaching and preaching to the church on purpose so that none of us just becomes an interpreter on themselves. But that is what it says. Verses 8 and 9, God is rich in love. Verse 20, but he will destroy the wicked. That means some of those that God loves, he will be destroyed by his wrath. And Now, some of you may be sitting there going, but that's a contradiction. And I would submit, no, it's not. It is the complexity of an infinite God, one that's very hard for us to comprehend at that level. Now, the bottom line is this. Let me pick on pastors a minute. For any pastor just to get up and glibly throw out God's unconditional love without qualification is not helpful. Why? Because the question is, well, then what are people likely to hear at that point? I'll tell you. True born-again Christians are likely to hear they are secure in the love of Christ for all eternity. That's true. What is an unsaved person likely to hear? Unsaved person's likely to hear God accepts them with no conditions and there's no need for repentance and that is patently false. Darcy Sproul uh, cryptically says, the kingdom of God is not Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Right? And so I submit, that's why, the, and that's why a number like D.A. Carson and Sproul and others have said, 
The phrase God's unconditional love really is not a helpful phrase. It is not the way the Bible frames the issue. And, and actually, the phrase can be quite misleading. A better phrase, a better phrase is God's unfailing love. It's a better phrase. For those who fear him. For those who fear him. See, the biblical teaching is, Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the biblical teaching. That nothing can separate a true Christian from God's unfailing love. God's unfailing love for those who fear him. That is the biblical teaching. One more thing I want to look at in verse 16, back to John chapter 3.16. It says, for God so loved the world. When John uses the phrase the world, he is being intentionally provocative in at least two ways. You say, well, well, how so? One, to remind the Jewish people that God's love extends beyond just one ethnic group. Obviously, in the Old Testament, Jews had it straight. God loved them. But they believed God loved only them. And that was not uncommon even in the first century of the church. And John's writing to remind them God's love is so broad, the gospel is for all peoples, regardless of race or gender or background or ethnicity or nationality. That's why we wanted to read the scriptures today in multiple languages. That's why we have their flags up here. That's why we send missionaries out to the different peoples of the world. So John is reminding his readers that God loves all peoples, all races, all genders, all nationalities. And his love is not confined to one ethnic group, one tribe. And that is a shocking concept probably to a first century Jew. The other reason the phrase the world is provocative is it reminds us that God's love pierces what you might call the dark realm. You say, what's that mean? Well, in New Testament theology, especially in John's theology, the word world, cosmos in Greek, but the word we translate world, has very negative connotations. It is a dark jurisdiction. If you know Lord of the Rings, think the land of Mordor kind of thing. It is the realm of Satan, sin, and death. And it's interesting that while we're told God loves the world, in 1 John, Christians are actually commanded not to love the world. Do you know that? 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John tells Christians, quote, do not love the world. Why? Because the world is a dark realm of Satan, sin, and death. Or anything in the world. Or Romans 2.12. I mean 12.2. Do not be conformed to the world, says the Apostle Paul. Now you're, you're starting to see the biblical concept of world. Or James 1.27, where James warns Christians to keep themselves from being polluted by the world. And yet God's love is so powerful, John is telling us, that's the provocative part here. God's love is so powerful, he sent his son on mission into the dark realm of Satan's sin and death to rescue perishing sinners. So the phrase, for God so loved the world, is very provocative, at least at two levels. All right, let's go to the next phrase, that he gave his only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Son. The Bible teaches God has only one begotten Son. Now, the phrase begotten is a little bit foreign to Western ears. It's not a phrase we typically use. It's a little bit like the phrase in the Bible, firstborn. It can be literal or it can mean preeminent one. Same with the title firstborn. And in biblical theology and in John's theology, it means preeminent one. 
doesn't mean Jesus had a beginning. It means he's the exalted one over all creation. And God is saying in this verse, he only has one son that is preeminent over the universe. Now, understand, if I had a Muslim up here, he would say, this is blasphemy. He wouldn't hesitate to tell you that. If you read the Quran, you will know that to say God has a son or an only begotten son is absolute blasphemy. The Bible says, no, 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 this is the essence of the gospel. And the Bible wants you to know that God's only begotten son makes him utterly unique. Why? Because sometimes angels are called sons of God, like in Job, or sometimes Christians are called sons of God, adopted into the family, like in Romans chapter 8. But the one and only begotten son is above all creation, is preeminent. Just like in Colossians 1.15 where it says he's the firstborn of all creation. doesn't mean he's the first one created. It means he has preeminence over the whole creation. That's what it means. That's why the Nicene Creed picked up the language of this verse. Beget. Again, it's not a phrase we typically use, but it is interesting. Like in the Nicene Creed, it understands the biblical concept. I love the way C.S. Lewis phrases it this way. He says, quote, rabbits beget rabbits, horses beget horses, humans beget humans, not statues or portraits, and God begets God, not humans and angels. And when the Bible says he gave his only son, what is he speaking of uniquely? And the answer is of the cross. Ultimately, he is speaking of the cross. The cross where Jesus died for sin is the most profound display of, of God's love for perishing sinners. Let me say that one more time. The cross where Jesus died for sin is the most profound display of God's love for sinners. And that is why he gave his one and only unique begotten firstborn son. That's why Romans 5.8 is a verse many Christians love because it gets to the very core of the gospel. But God showed his love for us this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That brings us to the third phrase in our verse. What is that? That whoever believes in him will what? Not perish. That means this most beloved verse announces there is a danger of perishing. John 3.16 teaches the doctrine of hell. It teaches that there is judgment. And that there's something we have to do to move from being judged and under God's wrath to not being under it anymore. Whoever believes in him will not perish. Now, it's interesting. This is in the present tense. The verb is in the present tense. And so really, it is a better way to translate it. The one who is believing, present tense, will not perish. The Bible never says, well, look back to some decision way in the past and ask, did you believe at one time? The Bible always phrases it and frames it in the present tense. The one who is believing now will not perish. And there's lots of stories of those who believe. I love the testimonies we put up front. Two weeks, we're going to have a baptism service. If you have not followed Christ in obedience to baptism and you are saved, I hope in two weeks you're in the waters of baptism. We love the stories we hear, don't we? I mean, they're just some of the best parts of our worship service when people come tell how they came to faith. As you read the history of the church, stories abounding of people who came to saving faith in Christ. We love those stories. One of my favorite, a little bit humorous, but one of my favorite is how the great preacher Charles Spurgeon came to saving faith when he was a teenager. So kids, teenagers, hear this. 15 years old, he's on his way to church. The date is January 6th, 1850. There's a snowstorm in his area. And so he couldn't go to his normal church, so he ends up, he tells us, at 
something he called a primitive Methodist chapel. Now, interesting, before I go to the rest of the story here, in less than 10 years from this event, he will be the pastor of one of the largest churches on the planet. And at this point, he's only 15 years old. The regular pastor was not there that morning. There was hardly anybody there that morning, actually, because of the snowstorm. And so a layman got up to preach. I want you to hear Spurgeon's description of the layman, because he wasn't impressed with this guy. And then what happened to Spurgeon, which is just an encouraging reminder of the power of the gospel, regardless of the messenger. So here's Spurgeon's own words, describing what he experienced as a 15-year-old watching this guy get up and try to preach. Quote, A poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up to the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. Now give the guy credit, he probably wasn't planning on preaching that day. His text was, quote, Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Pretty good sermon. I mean, you could just read that over and over, give the benediction, and send people home. But then he looked at me under the gallery, when you only have about 15 people present, it's not too hard to select somebody. He looked at me under the gallery, and he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to having remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. Listen to his next phrase. However, it was a good blow struck. Then he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist can shout, young man, look to Jesus Christ. And Spurgeon was converted to Christ. And that day he was born again. Whoever believes, whoever is believing, will not perish. Why do we need to look to Jesus? Let me ask you that question. Why do we need to look to Jesus so we won't perish? Because we need a Savior. That's why. The Bible says we're born perishing sinners under eternal judgment and under damnation. And the problem is a lot of contemporary Western evangelism frequently just dilutes the gospel and leaves out the bad news. If you leave out the bad news, there's really no reason for the good news. The gospel, when the bad news gets left out, is neutered and it becomes just good advice. It doesn't warn sinners of the danger of perishing. And that's what we have all around us today. Smiley preachers talking about your best life now and not warning people that there's judgment to come. The Bible's clear, friends. We're born sinners and rebels. There is a hell. There is a danger of perishing. And whoever believes in Jesus will not perish. And one last point here about this. Look at verse 16 again. John 3.16 does not say everyone will believe. This is not teaching universalism. It doesn't even say that everyone is able to believe. All John 3.16 says, and by the way, it's just as clear in the Greek as it is the English. It's a very easy verse to read in the Greek. It translates almost word for word over into English. And all it says is this, whoever is believing in Jesus for salvation will not perish. That's what John 3.16 announces. And then the last phrase, but will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life.
You know, when most of us think of heaven, a lot of us think in invisible categories. We think of something that's not quite tangible, not physical. And yet, when the Bible talks about the new heaven and new earth, it is a very physical reality. Remember, this world was paradise, and it is now under a curse. And so this should give us an idea, somewhat very distorted, albeit, but what the new earth will be like, but not under a curse anymore. Can any of us imagine what that, that's why Paul says nobody can imagine what that would be like. To have all of the beauty and splendor of our world, but without any of the curse, the disease, the death, the suffering, sorrow that is on this planet. The Bible teaches the new earth will be a spectacular new physical world where the resurrected body of a believer will dwell, a place to serve and learn and work and play and worship. And John describes the new earth as a very real place where there will be no tears, no death, no curse, no pain, no suffering, no sorrow, but a place every bit as physical and real as anything we know right now, every bit as tangible and solid as anything we know right now, a world of beauty and joy and relationships and peace and light and truth. And the resurrected bodies of believers will dwell in that location. All right. Talk about our summons. John 3.16 is one of the very few verses in the Bible that announces the gospel and then gives you a summons. So what's the gospel? The gospel is in the indicative. The gospel doesn't tell you to do anything. It just announces something. So the first part announces God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. That's the gospel. Then you have the summons. Whoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. So let me tease out a couple summons coming out of this. Number one. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, remember God is love and it's his nature to love. This separates the true God of the Bible from all counterfeit gods. And again, of all the things we can say about God, make sure we say God loves. It's in his nature to love. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Remember that God is love. It's in his nature to love. Number two, remember that whoever is believing in Jesus will not perish. If you're believing in Jesus today, if you're all in, if you've cried out to him for forgiveness of sin and asked him to be your savior and surrendered to him as Lord, you are saved. The bad news is that we're born moral rebels. We're born lawbreakers. We're born slaves to sin. We're born blinded in sin. We're born under God's wrath. The good news is there's a loving God who sent his son, his only begotten son on mission, and that whoever believes in him will not perish. And the very first command given to those who do believe is what? To be immersed under water. Why? To announce to the world they have a Savior. They've been buried with Christ and resurrected with Christ. That doesn't save them going underwater, but it's the very first command given to any Christian to go underwater. And that means if I am resisting that and I am born again, but I'm not doing that, I'm being disobedient. And there are consequences to disobedience in terms of answered prayer, in terms of God's blessing on my life. That's why we have baptism services, so we can help people be obedient. We want to dunk you. We haven't lost anybody yet. And we want to hear more salvation stories, and we want to celebrate. Baptism services are some of our best services because we get to celebrate. Thirdly, coming out of John 3.16, remember, remember to evangelize your children. Kids, young people, moms and dads, 
grandparents, aunts and uncles, those who work with kids in Awana and Sunday school, make sure you are sharing the gospel with those entrusted around you, that you're evangelizing them, that you're urging them to repent of their sin and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and then coming alongside and discipling them. Moms and dads, if your kids only see you put your, you know, your Bible on the shelf and you only take it off on Sundays, that is, you know, I mean, that's discipling. It's lousy discipling. They need to see you all in. They need to see you engaged. Dads, we need to be reading our Bibles out loud with our kids. We need to be taking our kids through a catechism and teaching them good theology and doctrine, helping them read and process good books. Deuteronomy 6-ing them. What's that mean? Deuteronomy 6 says, make the conversation about the things of God a regular thing in your home. All the time, be talking about a Christian worldview, what God has to say, what would God, what would his perspective be on this subject, what does the Bible say, and that should be a regular, ongoing topic of conversation and woven into the fabric of our lives. Make sure you are evangelizing and sharing the gospel with your kids and not just hoping that the church will do the job. Church is to come alongside, but moms and dads are the primary evangelists and disciples. And lastly, John 3.16 would say to us, remember to share the gospel with those we care about and love. There's an old saying, I like to repeat it every so often, friends don't let friends go to hell without warning them. And why do you warn somebody? Remember? We warn people because why? We love them. Warning is an act of love. We warn because we love, and the Bible warns because God loves. And God so loved the world that dark, demonic realm, that he sent his only son into that realm on mission so that anybody who is believing in him will not perish in hell, but have eternal life on the new heaven and the new earth. That, boys and girls, that young people, that, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Father, we thank you for that gospel. And I want to pray right now for those who are not saved and sitting here and wondering or knowing they are not born again and have never embraced that but heard it this morning. Oh, God, may today be the day you give the new birth to a number of people here that they're saved. And may we see them in the baptism waters in two weeks announcing they are now followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, thank you for gospel preaching churches in our area. Thank you for faithful Sunday school teachers, faithful volunteers, faithful pastors, faithful leaders and elders in other congregations that are upholding the gospel. May you pour out great blessing on them. And we ask that we would see this year many conversions, many coming to faith, many sharing their faith, and new eyes and ears being opened and people becoming saved. We pray this, we plead for this, and we ask this in the power of Jesus' name. Amen.